Well, wonderful. Now, please take your seats. How many services have you two been at today? Three. Were you at the yeah, nine o'clock? Nine o'clock. Yeah. Were you at the eleven o'clock? Yes. Were you at the two thirty? Yes. You're at the five. Yes. You're going to be at the seven. Yes. Come on, everyone. <laughs> And you got freedom. Well done. Thank you. Isn't it wonderful to have such servants in the house today? It's good to see you here this evening. And uh, at the 7 o'clock Holy Spirit fire service, uh, I'm going to be ministering on the question, is there a balm in Gilead? And we're going to be looking at, yes, there is. And we're going to be believing uh, for healings, both uh, of the body and also healings of the heart at the 7 o'clock. We're having some significant healing touches over the last few weeks at the 7 o'clock service, and um, we're going to continue in that vein. So uh, that's what I'm going to be uh, ministering on tonight. But here we are, and what we are doing in this series throughout this month and also throughout next month, except on Sunday, is it the 10th or 11th, I can't remember, we're going to be having a very special visit to the 5 o'clock service from our director of Elim Missions, and he's going to come and give us a presentation on all the great things that we're involved in as a movement across the world and speak about going into all the world. And so, apart, but apart from that 10th or 11th, whatever that Sunday is, uh, we're going to continue looking at snapshots of revivals and revivalists that have taken place in Britain. And um, these are based on my book that I wrote quite a long while ago called Land of Hope and Glory, British Revivals Through the Ages. And if you're interested, you can get these priced three pounds. Um, you know, that, 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 yeah, well, they're 10 years old. Pardon? <laughs> three pounds. So if you're interested, you know, feel free to follow, follow through on those. And so far, we've looked at the gospel in the Dark Ages. We've looked at people like St. Aidan and Columba and St. Patrick and how these monks, although they didn't have great theology, but they had a great heart for God, a passion for souls. And with the little light that they had, they burned their way through northern England, uh, uh, starting monasteries, sending out missionaries, moving in signs and wonders. And then last week, we spent some time looking at an incredible move of God in the 1300s. We looked at Wycliffe, the first person to translate the Bible into English. And we looked at his Bible men and the Lollards, who were just outside London in Buckinghamshire, near, very near where I live, actually. And I live just outside a village of Amersham, where you can go on the Martyr's Walk, where these uh, Lollards. And in the 1300s, we looked at how there was such a move of God as these Bible preachers went up and down the country, preaching in the villages, preaching in the taverns, and, and many people were coming in their homes and, and praying and, and believing God for a great work. Well, now we're moving on um, into the 1500s. And during this time, we'll see that what we spoke about last week, the Lollards and John Wycliffe, was a very powerful basis for the Reformation to hit England in the 1500s. It didn't come out of a blue. The blue, there were Lollards um, from Wycliffe's day, had, had continued in their generations uh, throughout the 1400s into the 1500s. So there was fertile ground 
for the message of justification by faith and sola scripture, the, 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 the preeminence of scripture in all things for when the Reformation came. And what we're going to do today is just do some introductory thinking on someone who was very famous during that time, John Knox, the thundering Scot. We're going to have a look at his influence, not only in Scotland and in England, but how he took the word of God and, uh, and literally thundered through Scotland and England. So if we can have the PowerPoint on, please. I've got a few quotes that I want to mention first, just to set the scene. And uh, here is a quote from Mary, Queen of Scots. And uh, uh, there, was, there was two Marys that, John, that um, John Knox would be involved with during this time. Uh, uh, Bloody Mary, who was the daughter of Henry VIII, and she was a queen for a, a couple of years during his life. We'll mention her. That's, uh, that's, that's Bloody Mary of England, Mary Tudor. But here is a quote from Mary, Queen of Scots, a different Mary because Scotland was its own kingdom at the time. And she said this. She was a, a, an opposer of the word of God and the Protestant movement and uh, even tried to get... Um, uh, John Knox uh, executed, and she said this about him, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. Think of that, and she was his enemy. And then we hear uh, a quote from John Knox, and this was his attitude towards his native Scotland. Oh God, give me Scotland or I die. Well, no wonder Mary, Queen of Scots, who was his enemy, was, was, was concerned with such prayers like that. He was a prophet of God, a powerful reformer, and the echoes of his thunder were heard throughout Europe. He was a, an Elijah type of figure, a John the Baptist type of figure, filled with zeal, boldness, and prayer, and often called the first Puritan. We go to his early life. He was born in 1514 in Haddington, Scotland, and uh, he uh, went to, he, as he grew, he went to St. Andrew's University, and St. Andrew's would be a very important place for him, and there's a picture of St. Andrew's University uh, right behind, behind us up there in Scotland, and um, in 1530, he became a Catholic priest, nothing strange about his career progress, except he came into contact with a man called George Wishart. George Wishart. And George Wishart was a powerful man of God. He was influenced by both the Lollards that we spoke about last week when we looked at Wycliffe. He had been influenced by their teachings from the 1300s onwards. And uh, he was also powerfully influenced by the Reformation that was currently taking Europe by storm. John Knox was deeply influenced by Wishart and, uh, and wrote this about this man who became his mentor and also uh, John Knox became his actual bodyguard. He was his bodyguard as a young man. And John Knox says of Wishart, he was a man of such graces as before him were never heard in this realm. He was so clearly illuminated with the spirit of prophecy that he saw not only things pertaining to himself, but also such things as some towns and the whole realm afterwards felt, which he prophesied not in secret, 
but in the audience of many. This man not only had a reforming zeal of getting people back to the scripture and the ways of the New Testament, but he also had a prophetic unction on him. Now, Wishard was a, was a preacher, and he'd preach anywhere. He was threatened by bishops and clergy and royalists, but Wishard wasn't, wasn't worried, he wasn't fearful. He knew what the gospel was, and he was going to preach it. We read of him in an article, The Puritans and Revival Christianity, that of the Scottish reformer, George Wishart, who was martyred in 1546, we have this account of his open-air preaching. He mounted an earthen fence and continued preaching to the people for around three hours. God wrought so wonderfully by that sermon that one of the wickedest men in the country, a prince of Sheld, was converted by it. And his eyes ran down with such abundance of tears that all men wondered at him. It's amazing that Wishard would go into the streets and, and go wherever he wanted to preach the gospel. It reminds us of the later Methodist revival that we'll be looking at when we think of Wesley and Whitfield and how they too took the gospel to the, out of the churches and into the uh, fields and just preached to whoever would listen. Now, Knox was apprenticed to him and so very soon uh, came into contact with his ideas and saw, just as much as he saw his ideas in his fervent view of Scripture and his anti-popist uh, stance, he also saw the spirit that was on his life. And I think that's communicated to the young John Knox. This man was fearless. This man was prophetic. This man had a deep love of souls and evangelism. And uh, he told John Knox that he felt that the Lord was saying that he would eventually be martyred. And he gave a description of his death. And uh, Wishart said to Knox this, and I think this is a, a powerful quote that, that I've, I've given to you. He said to Knox that he wearied of the world, for he perceived that men began to weary of God. Isn't that interesting? When men begin to weary of God, the prophets of God sometimes begin to weary of the world. In other words, he was sick and tired of the sickness of spirituality that was around him in Scotland at that time. And uh, as Wissart was taken away for trial and certain death, Knox, who was there to protect him, his bodyguard, wished to go with him. And Wissart said to Knox, No, return to your pupils, and God bless you. One is sufficient for one sacrifice. And Cardinal Beaton, who was responsible for Wissart's death, was later murdered by a group of Avengers. Now, what did Knox do? Well, when Knox had seen that his mentor had gone and, and martyred, he withdrew. He didn't want a part of all this. It, it, was, it, it was too much to take. He'd lost his spiritual father. And so he hoped he'd have a nice, quiet, obscure life teaching the children of noblemen back in St. Andrews, but this time in St. Andrews Castle, which we can see a picture of in a, in a ruined state. And so Knox, in, in 1547, went there. It was a, a nice life. He enjoyed 
teaching there. He, he had no ambitions at all to go back or to go, go into public preaching. He just wanted to be left alone, left alone by God, left alone by everybody else. He'd seen um, a man that he'd loved martyred, and uh, for him that was enough. But you know, God's gifting makes room for the most, even, even the most reluctant vessels. And soon, people began to press him in the castle and the people who used to live there and, and uh, asked him to preach and to teach. And um, he, he had a little bit of a reputation of being a preacher and teacher, but he said he would not run where God had not called him, but God had called him. And this is the story Thomas Carl tells us that the post of prophet to his nation was not of Knox's seeking. He had lived 40 years quietly obscure and well content to guide his own steps by the light of the Reformation, never unduly intruding it on others. Resolute he was to walk by the truth and speak by the truth when called to do it, but not ambitious of more, not even thinking him capable of more. Isn't this interesting? Because this is a picture of somebody that had a personal and private faith. He had seen what had happened when someone in those era took their personal and private faith in Scripture being sufficient for all things. He'd seen his mentor. So here he is, and he'd withdrew. He withdrew from the battleground that was out there, the battleground of the gospel. He'd withdrew to his own walls in a castle, if you like. He was teaching children, and, and if someone pressed him... He, he wouldn't cave in. He believed what he believed, but, but neither was he preaching it, neither did he want to go public. It's a lot like sometimes we could say Christians today. We might be very fervently fervent in our beliefs, but, but we too often as Christians withdraw to our own castles, don't we? Where uh, we might be very loud and vocal in cell or very loud and vocal in our services in these four walls, but... In our neighborhood, does anybody know that we're Christians? At our workplace, do we, do we share anything of, what, of what, we, what we believe? Or do we do what the forces of secularism want us to do, which is to keep our faith so private that it's never shared? Well, John Knox was facing this at this time. But the people of God in St. Andrews would, wouldn't take no for an answer. So... They devised a plot to get him into a position where he wouldn't be able to refuse to take up the ministry. It was a bit sneaky, really. So what they did is at the next service in the castle, a man called John Roth was chosen to preach a sermon on the election of ministers and how the congregation had power to call any man to the ministry upon whom he recognized the call of God. So this was the thing, he was going to preach on that. But uh, John Knox didn't know what was going to happen. He then preached about the dangers of refusing such a call on your life. He preached through these points, John Knox probably nodding, thinking, yes, this is excellent. And then at the end, he stopped, he stared straight at Knox and said these words, in the name of God and his son Jesus Christ, and in the name of those that presently call you by my mouth, I charge you, John Knox, that you refuse not this holy calling, that you take upon yourself 
the public office of preaching in order to avoid the displeasure of God and desire what his multiple and desire that he multiplies his graces upon you. He then spoke to the whole congregation. Was not this your charge to me? Do you not approve this calling? They answered, it was, and we approve it. So guess what the great thundering Scott did? He ran to his room weeping. And for many days, he suffered from, from a deep melancholy and struggled with the call to preach. He looked depressed, full of grief, troubled of heart to all that were around him. He couldn't even enter into conversation with anyone. He was wrestling with God deep inside. He was having his Jacob experience with God. Why was Knox so reluctant to step forward? Well, remember, he was still deeply grieving and maybe had problems with God over the martyrdom of his own Elijah, George Wishart. and Perhaps he was counting the cost of obedience. One of the things we'll notice about John Knox is that when he takes on the call, he takes it on fearlessly. Others had taken on the ministry, but many of these who were in the ministry, well, they had their boundaries. They had their, they had their, their, their things where, where they thought, well, this far I'll go, but no, far, no further for the Lord. They had their compromise point. And we, we see that in this in the Reformation that took place in England that was distinctly different to the way that the Reformation came in many other nations. You can think of the Church of England. Remember the Church of England? Remember Henry VIII when he took upon himself the headship of the Church of England in opposition to the Pope? And the Church of England, basically what happened was a lot of their doctrine was eventually reformed. In other words, it was brought back to Bible teaching, similar to what was going on, on, on in Europe. So uh, a lot of the doctrine, the 39 articles of faith, were, were based on the Bible, but many of the trappings of the Roman Catholic Church were kept. That's why the Archbishop still wears robes, and, the, uh, and uh, we have, still have priests in the Church of England, and, uh, and, and these things. So... They dealt with a lot of doctrinal issues, but they didn't deal with a lot of the practices that were, were going on. And, you know, this, these were high stakes at this time. High stakes. And there, there, there had been numbers of people that had been, been martyred for their faith. These, these weren't just things that, that, that if you kept to yourself, if, if, you, if you were found out that you were, you were on the wrong side of the, of, of the faith of the king or the queen, you, you were liable to be killed for it. And I think that John Knox was thinking these things through. I think he was thinking, Do you know, if I'm going to go, I'm going to go 100%. If I'm going to obey the call, then there's no turning back. And, and there's going to be no compromise. And so he did his wrestling there. I believe that, 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 that he submitted and that in a sense he, he died to his life there. Before, he was trying to hold on to his life. He was got a nice tutoring job in a castle and things were looking good and he had a nice personal faith with Jesus and shared it with those that were open to him. But now he realized that if he was going to enter back into public life, then how was he going to do it? And um, Knox prayed through these things 
and made the decision that he would answer the call. Then immediately, he began to preach the gospel without fear. Not only preaching the gospel without fear, but speaking out against falsehoods and, and abuses, false doctrine, false practice that was in Catholicism very strongly at that time. And he began to preach. And he began to preach like George Vishart. And at that time, there was a Catholic queen in Scotland, and uh, it was very dangerous for him to confront these errors. And he would say things like this. As for your Roman church, as it is now corrupted, and the authority thereof, wherein stands the hope of your victory, I no more doubt that it is a synagogue of Satan, and the head thereof called the Pope, to be the man of sin whom the apostle speaketh. Now, this is powerful stuff. When uh, the Queen of Scots, Queen Mary, Queen of Scots, is a Roman Catholic. And, and he began to preach these things fiercely. He began to champion the doctrines of justification by faith alone, totally apart from works. And he challenged priests and bishops to prove from Scripture their current practices as well as their current beliefs. The whirlwind had begun. And uh, his absolute boldness and confrontational style may offend some people today if they were to hear him, but uh, this is what they, they said of John Knox. Others cut off the branches of the papistry, but he strikes at the root also to destroy the whole. Jox, uh, Knox wanted a revolution, a, not just a branch-cut pruning, but a root and branch uprooting of false religion so that the true vine of Christ could flourish. Others said, Master George Wishart never spoke so plainly, and yet he was burnt. Even so, John Knox will be. He wouldn't compromise. And then something happened. The French... A French army joined with the Scots, and blaming Knox for the murder of the cardinal, which he had nothing to do with, Cardinal Beaton that had, had uh, executed Wishart, French and Scottish soldiers in, in, in 1547 laid siege to the castle of St. Andrews where he was living. And inside the castle, many were confident, we can withhold this, this storm, we, we have... They can't out-see just. Look at, the, look at our walls. But Knox had an intuition from the Holy Spirit. And when they boasted in the castle about the thickness of their walls, Knox said, they shall be but eggshells. When they said, England will rescue us, he said, you shall not see them, but you shall be delivered into your enemy's hand and shall be carried to a strange country. The castle fell and they were taken prisoners, including Knox. And he was carried off by the French as a galley slave on ships. So for 19 months, John Knox was a galley slave on a French ship. Think about that. Think about that. 19 months. What must have he been thinking? What must have he been suffering? Nothing but a slave. Maybe he should have kept his mouth shut. Maybe he should have been careful about who he had spent his time with, like Wishart, earlier on in his life. All that boldness 
friends with these reformers, where did it get him? It got him to be a slave in a slave ship. But he'd, he'd, he'd made his decision to follow Christ whatever took place. I think he'd already died to his flesh and to his earthly life before this. And there's an interesting story about Knox. He was taunted, threatened, tortured, even on the ship. He would not take mass, and uh, he, he would rather have died to do that. And there's a story where one morning on this ship, the French brought a small, beautiful, painted statue of, of Madonna, the Queen of Heaven, Mary, to the chain Knox, and ordered him to kiss it. And he said, trouble me not, such an idol is a curse, and I will not touch it. Thou shall handle it, said the officers, and pushed the idol right in his face. What did Knox do? Grabbed the idol and threw it into the water, and said, let our lady now save herself. She's light enough, let her learn to swim. No sailor tried to taunt the Scot from that point on. But the Holy Spirit spoke to Knox while he was uh, this galley slave. And he said, you know, he said, God will deliver us from this bondage to his glory even in this life. And uh, what happened was there were some discussions between King Edward VI of England and he managed to persuade the French to release a number of Protestant prisoners of which Knox was. And Knox returned from this experience. Having returned, he moved down to England, and there he began to preach powerfully, beginning in, the, in, 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 in Northumbria, in Berwick and on Tweed, and he had a very powerful congregation there. And there he preached them the doctrines, justification by faith, brought them back to Scripture, and uh, was, was doing very powerfully there. And uh, he had a profound effect on those that he spoke to, and they even called on him to come down to London to preach. He was preaching and one of the court preachers of the king. And so he would preach. The, king, the young King Edward VI that died in his teenage years, he would preach to him. But he would not in any way compromise his message of truth. The supremacy of scripture, justification by faith alone, the priesthood of all believers. He spent time in Buckinghamshire. This is why it's interesting. We spoke about the Lollards last week, didn't we? And, and Wycliffe and how that was a very strong place. And how the Lollards was fertile ground for the Reformation. And, and that's why even today we've got so many Baptist churches that are there. It, it, it was known as the Bible Belt of England. Uh, and this great history of, of, of moves of God. And so he spent time in Buckinghamshire, was chaplain to the king at Windsor. They asked him to become the Bishop of Rochester, but he declined. Why? Because he was what some people call the first Puritan. What do we mean when we talk about the Puritan? Well, I've already mentioned, haven't I, a little bit how in the Church of England, although not, not all, but many practices of church life that were inherited from Roman Catholicism still continued, a few were, were changed, but the doctrine was radically changed, 
And many people in the Church of England felt that actually a compromise could, be, could happen. You could, you could have the basics of doctrinal truth and, and church practice and church life. Well, that was really a secondary measure. After all, as long as we're, we're believing you know, in the basic foundational doctrines of the Bible, what does it matter if we wear mitres? What does it matter if we kneel to take communion? These, these things are secondary. But they weren't secondary to Knox. Because Knox was, has been called the first Puritan. And what, what is a Puritan? A Puritan is somebody that won't go halfway. They want to go the full way. They, they want not only to preach true doctrine, but they also want to live true doctrine. To put the pattern of New Testament doctrine and the pattern of New Testament practice into their lives. And so he refused in any way to, to compromise. In fact, he even had a great influence on some of those reformers who remained in the Church of England. Uh, and in the 39 Articles, there was this big discussion about when communion is taken, do you kneel to receive it or do you stand to receive it? And you might think, what does it matter? Well, it was a sign, Knox thought. It was a sign that came from Roman Catholicism of giving adoration to, the, to those that were symbols, which was just wafers. In fact, he did away with wafers. He decided to go back to bread. He understood that what you practice influences what you believe. And so he wanted a full reformation into New Testament times. Well, things changed in England while he was down there. Um, the young Edward VI died and uh, in his place Mary became queen and she was a Mary I, a, a great persecutor of the reformers and those that wanted to go back to, to the Bible. And so when she became queen, Knox left England and uh, this was an interesting time because when he left England, he spent some time pastoring a church in Frankfurt, but then he ended up leaving for Geneva. And Geneva is, is a, a very important place because that's where John Calvin ministered from. And so Knox was, was really excited because he was brought over to Geneva to pastor the first English-speaking church there. And so he was able in this, this freedom of this place at that time to try and put into practice, as well as theory, um, all the Reformation truths that he had. And, and it was there in Geneva with many of the English refugees where he spent some time with John Calvin. But then when Mary died and Elizabeth I came back to England, Knox returned to his native Scotland. And there he wanted to bring what he'd experienced, the liberties of doctrine and the liberties of, of practice that he'd experienced in Geneva. He'd seen it, he'd tasted it, he'd enjoyed the freedom, and he wanted to bring it back to, um, to Scotland. And there behind me, uh, you can see uh, John Knox. He's Oh, just... Go back to John Knox. Sorry, I'm, I'm moving. Far right, there's John Knox. This is Geneva. 
And here are three other great reformers. Uh, we've got Theodore Beezer, far left. Then we've got John Calvin, William Farrell, and John Knox. So you can see how, uh, how he was respected through reformers right across um, Europe. Knox returned and began to preach. He began to preach in any church that would let him. He began to preach in fields. And a powerful revival began in Scotland. Knox soon said, God did so multiply our number that it appeared as if men had rained from the clouds. Can you imagine that kind of response in preaching the gospel? Can, that, that you would say, we're having so many converts. It's raining converts. Wouldn't that be amazing? To have preaching and to have God so pour out his spirit of conviction on everything that you do that people, that it's just like, I mean, it was raining. Did anyone get caught in the rain earlier? Well, can you imagine after a dry spell having rain? Can you imagine the dry spell that had been taking place in Scotland and now it was raining souls? He said, now for 40 days and more, God has used my tongue in my native country to the manifestation of his glory. One witness said, the voice of this one man is able in one hour to put more life into us than 500 trumpets continually blasting in our ears. Later, Scottish historian Kirkton wrote about this Scottish revival. He said, the Church of Scotland has been unique among churches, where in other nations the Lord thought it enough to convict a few in a city or a village or family to himself, leaving the greater part in darkness. In Scotland, the whole nation was converted by lump. And within 10 years, after Popery was defeated in Scotland, not even 10 people could be found who did not profess the true Reformed religion. Lo, here, a nation born in one day. And even if it was a little bit of an exaggeration that not 10 people could be found, imagine being able to say that. A nation born in a day. That's, what we, that's why we study such revivals and works. Because we believe that God can do it again. As he did again and again and again and again in church history. We don't give up hope. We believe that God has not finished with us. Scotland at this time had its own queen. I already mentioned Mary, Queen of Scots. And uh, she was staunchly Roman Catholic and a great opposer of the reformers. And in 1561, she arrived, arrived back in Scotland and was ready to deal with John Knox. She met him five times and she tried everything possible. She tried flattery, persuasion, threats and intimidation to overcome Knox. But none of these efforts worked. Mary, referring to the Catholic cardinals, said, You, you John Knox, interpret the... Sorry, Carlos, you interpret the scriptures in one way and they in another. Whom shall I believe and who shall be judge? You shall believe God who plainly speaks in his word, replied Knox. And farther than the word teaches you, you shall believe neither the one or the other. The word of God is plain in itself. If there is any obscurity in one place, the Holy Spirit, who is never contrary to himself, explains it even more clearly in other places so that there can remain no doubt except to those who are obstinately ignorant. You see, these are one of the big arguments about not letting people get to the Bible. The idea was that 
unless you were properly trained, you would misunderstand the Bible. If you haven't got the proper training in church, uh, or like a cardinal, then you would misread it, you're uneducated. And Knox was saying, no, the Bible is plain, the Bible is simple, and uh, this idea of interpretation, you go to it and the gospel is clear there. He continued to strengthen the churches and contend to the faith right up to his death. It's amazing that he wasn't martyred, but uh, this no compromise, no compromise of doctrine, but also no compromise of practice had a powerful input, not just on him, but he set the tone for many of the preachers that were to come. You know, sometimes what we can do is we might not see everything that happens in our life, but we can set the tone for others to follow. If you're a cell leader, you can set the tone for your cell members to follow. Setting the tone and raising the bar. And that's what John Knox did. And you, you can trace many of these Puritans that came from him, not just wanting radical reformation back to the Bible truths, but back to the Bible practices. These Puritans would, would, would even found America. Many of the Puritans that went over to America, it was because not only did they want to believe their faith, they wanted to practice their faith. It wasn't enough just to have right doctrine. They wanted to live out their faith in freedom and liberty. And right at the beginning of this, a, a big trumpet sound setting the course and standard of Puritan belief and practice was John Knox. Many people that, that, that have, have found difficulty with fear or timidity would, would look to Knox and see that he too, in his early years, was fearful and timid. But the Holy Spirit changed him into a man of conviction. Let me finish with a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book on the Puritans, and he sums up Knox as follows. What do we make of this man? He was a man for his age, a man for his times. Special men are needed for special times. God always produces such men. A mild man would have been useless in the Scotland of the 16th century and in many other parts of this country. A strong man was needed, a stern man, a courageous man, and such a man was John Knox. Martin Luther was of the same mold. God uses different types of men and gives them different personalities. Different men are needed at different times. In those times, an heroic, rugged character was needed, and God produced the man. So, we've had a look at John Knox. So next week, we're going to come back, and we're going to have a look at George Fox, uh, the unshakable shaker, the man that, um, that had an incredible prophetic and miraculous ministry, and, uh, and how God used him to, in many ways, bring back a fresh wave of, a, of the Spirit that uh, was needed because... Um, a lot of Protestantism had turned very cold and, uh, uh, and formal at that time during the Civil War. And George Fox and a few others, some of them went a bit too far, brought this wonderful wave of inspiration 
And Holy Spirit prophetic move into that. And we're going, to, we're going to have a look at that. And the tremendous effects of the Quakers that we are still feeling today. Every time, anybody like Cadbury chocolate? Well, you wouldn't have any Cadbury chocolate if it wasn't for the Quakers. So uh, if you like chocolate, we'll see you next week. God bless you. <laughs>